Recover with Jennifer Stone. Please stay tuned. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, August 26th, 2008. And once again, we have a democratic convention in full swing. Never mind the one 40 years ago. (laughs) Out in front of the library over on Russell Street, there's a uh, stenciled graffiti says... um, says, uh, law enforcement is a hate crime. <laughs> so it was then and now today. Anyway, all this stuff, as we know, is political pageantry. It's all a Hollywood um, production. Uh, with one voice, I deplore the extravagance, and then I turn around and think, well, if this is all we've got, I suppose, we got to celebrate this historic arrival, finally, of an African-American family, the Obamas. He's the potential head of state. Aha. And last night... Running for your mama was Michelle, gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, Michelle Robinson Obama. She lit up the stage, luminous. And, of course, she said all the right things. She hit hit on every point. She even, when it came to health care, she even said mental health care. Anyway, uh, she said the left things anyway, as well as the right things. Uh, the children were magical. Uh, uh, Malaya is 10 years old and Sasha is 7. Sasha's very sweet. Um, the 10 year old seemed to me extremely sophisticated. Uh, ah, yes. Uh, her dress was a classic kind of Grecian. The uh, girls' dresses were in tones, earth tones, like their mother. Their mother was in. Uh, uh, a green dress, yes, symbolic, earth, earth green, green party stuff. I hope that uh, got through to people. Uh, there was a uh, a young woman, the half-sister of Barack, her name is Maya. She was there to demonstrate the multiracial nature of today's families. Let's see. Her father's Indonesian, I suppose that makes her, well, she looks white, uh, appearance is everything in our culture. She and Barack, uh, their mom was born in Kansas, she's no longer with us, uh, a white lady, yes. It's a typical American family, but it seems foreign or just, you know, unusual to certain folks in middle America. 
you know, they're, I guess we call them Eurocentric. They still believe that Thomas Jefferson <laughs> never loved Sally Hemings, and they don't understand that we are a Creole nation and have been for many, many uh, hundreds of years now. The experts tell us that there is no such thing as a biological race. On the other hand, there's no use kidding ourselves. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois told us a hundred years ago all about the color line. Uh, du Bois wrote back in 1902, you know, uh, that that would be the problem of the 20th century, the color line. Uh, seems to me that in the 21st century, it's barbed wire. Uh White supremacy is still a virulent pathology. We notice the arrest of four guys who may or may not have been gunning for the candidate. Uh, oh, oh, too grim to think about. Anyway, Michelle uh, emphasized all of the inclusive things. You know, she talked about old and young, gay and straight. She gave all the party line stuff and she did it with much grace and enthusiasm. She talked about the uh, both and solution instead of the uh, the not the this or that uh, solution, you know. Things are not good or evil. Uh, let's hope that the voters get it, that they go for brains this time around, uh, and they certainly have plenty of beauty. Uh, I don't know, I don't know how people's minds work anymore. I think they tell us that emotionally we haven't evolved very much. Uh, I think the mind maybe has come a long way, but our emotions, uh, our fears seem to be ancient. Uh, Michelle's brother, her big brother, Craig Robinson introduced her to the audience. And he's this six foot six basketball coach at Oregon State. Ah, gorgeous. Their mother was in the audience. Now, she was authentic. Uh, yes, indeed. Working class Chicago. Anxiety writ large on her face. I don't suppose she knew the camera was on her a lot. Uh, Michelle said that. Her mother was the reason that she could get out and campaign for her husband. Her mother's there to take care of the children, the girls. Uh, now, Michelle herself is six feet or 5'11", I think it says here. Yes. Mm, and I don't know what they did or what she did in makeup, but uh, she was absolutely luminous, uh, film star gorgeous. Uh, I was thinking... It got very strange. I looked at the two children, and I suddenly thought of W.E.B. Du Bois' book, a book written, oh, a hundred years ago, called The Souls of Black Folk. And I remember he wrote about what he called the veil. He wrote about the death of the firstborn, he called it. Uh, his little son, buried in the red soil of Georgia, and he reflected in the souls of black folk that his angelic child had lived and died without the sad knowledge of the veil, what he calls the barrier between himself and the world, uh, the 
feeling that uh, any black child would experience growing up in these United States. Now, I don't know, depends on who you are and where you sit, whether or not you believe that the veil, the barrier of race, has been lifted at last. I guess we'd have to ask everybody. When I was young, the poet uh, Langston Hughes used to write about these things at great length. He had a poem that I used in school, I remember. It's a beautiful poem about an African-American woman who did not know her beauty. She did not know because she only saw herself reflected in dishwater. She didn't know about the Nile or the Euphrates. She did not uh, have the knowledge of her heritage. And I thought about that. Uh, oh, yes, self-esteem. That's the byword today. I knew once uh, a much older woman, a white woman, uh, middle class, I guess. She went off to, she took a plane to the women's conference in Africa in Nairobi some years ago I think oh it's more than a decade ago 15 years long time ago she is no longer with us uh, when she went to Nairobi she would have been maybe in her 70s and she came home to Santa Cruz and I visited her asked her to tell me all about the conference and I said what was it that surprised you you know what what was it you weren't expecting when you got to Kenya to Nairobi and she said that she was startled to realize that they were beautiful that the people there were beautiful 400 women she said coming out to the airfield all coming together to greet the women from abroad 400 women all singing together I said, what, what do you mean you, you, you didn't know they were beautiful? She said, well, not exactly, she said. Everywhere, she said, that I have lived here in the United States, she said, black Americans uh, don't seem to feel their beauty. They are behind a veil. Uh, they're somehow other. And I said, well, is that, you know, the way you see them or the way they see themselves? We talked about this for hours. Uh and then I remember reading James Baldwin, um, the great uh, black American writer. He wrote in uh, his uh, middle years, he wrote that he had had to live in Paris for nine years, be nine years out of the United States to really know, to really feel that someone could hate him for himself. It works that way in racist societies. Uh, you know how that happens. Whites can be hated for their whiteness. Uh, let's see. Uh, Maya, the sister of Obama, said that she is usually taken for a Latina. And then there was some fuss I heard about that. Uh, <laughs> feedback. It's a great soup, this society of the world. Uh, we learn if you take a plane to anywhere, to Paris, there's all Parisians, French folks, you know, Korea, it's just Koreans. Uh, but here, here in the U.S. of A., we are the world, we literally are. 
especially here at Cape Yafe. Everybody winds up here sooner or later. But if this is a cosmopolitan utopia, then why is it so hard for the masses here to learn to let go of this image of, uh, I guess, a wasp, um, uh, white Protestant Eurocentric stereotype, you know, the guy who's always the president. My theory is that we should send our children abroad in their early adolescence, send them off and let them travel the world because uh, middle school is hell anyway. <laughs> we all know that our congressmen have no passports. Bush didn't travel before he became president. These provincial dudes, these white men in Washington. They're so comfortable. They're so very, very rich. Now, I wanted to ask my engineer, Veronica Faisant, I want to ask her about this thing. This, what is it, Veronica, that happens to us when we leave America? We go to Mexico, even. I have a friend the other day, she came back and she said she got to Mexico and realized that she was more American than anything else. Ah, uh, yes. They asked her, you know, was she from Jamaica or something? She said, no, I'm from California. <laughs> I'm an Oakland black woman. <laughs> what is it that happens? Well, first of all, I want to say that my experience being in Paris is it's not all like it seems or what's portrayed in the media, that actually it's quite, um, um, they have a lot of cultural diversity there. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, you know, a lot of people from Vietnam and, you know, all of the places where they've, they've colonized. Right. <laughs> they said that the Algeria is, what is it, the riots? Was it the riots that happened in the suburbs this last uh, season? Yes. It was the Algerian kids? Well... I don't. I don't believe they were Algerians. I think they were other. They were from other places on the motherland. Uh -huh. But uh, certainly, uh, the French can be very racist. Oh boy! But then, on the other hand, being an African American, you know, I was treated like a celebrity just because. So is that the uh, Josephine Baker thing? <laughs> it's the Josephine Baker syndrome. Yeah. So I think that my first shock was having to admit that I was an American because when I'm here in America, well, it's it's shifted since, uh, you know, I've had a chance to go out of the country. You know, that was an epiphany for me both times. But generally speaking, and when I'm here, I don't think of myself as an American. I think of myself as an African-American, and that's something different. It is different. From yes. mainstream white America who is now having a problem with having a black man live in the White House. And why is it the White House anyway? Anyway, but that's another conversation. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so um, I felt a physical weight that I didn't even realize was there missing. I knew it was missing when I was in Paris or in, or in lots of places in Europe, actually. So mm -hmm. my idea about it is... I ended up seeing myself for the first on my first visit, seeing myself as an actor instead of a reactor. Uh, I saw myself as creative. Yeah. Uh, uh, what do we call that? The subject, the the uh, not the subject, the uh, the person who's the active person, right? Instead of the reactive person. Yes. Yes, right. yes. In other words, I could set things into motion, and the Parisians were absolutely accommodating. And part of the reason why is, uh, I think, because I wasn't from Texas. 
Oh, I'm oh, sorry. There you go. <laughs> careful, careful. Okay, careful, okay, just careful, kidding. Careful. Well, Texas that, is America. Okay, Texas is America. That's true. And there are an awful lot of Texans who just love to go to Paris. But, uh, you know, I'm an African-American, whatever. They're fa- a lot of people, a lot of Parisians still have fantasies about that. And also, um, I spoke some French, not as much as they thought, but a darn good accent. So they made me speak it way beyond 10 o'clock at night, which is my cutoff point. But the most important thing is that I got to experience myself in a different way. And that's what you were talking about, right? When people leave yeah. the country, what happens to them? Yeah. I came back and I just wanted to like get a fleet of planes and get all of the African-Americans I knew out of the country. Because I think it's very important, as we, you and I have discussed recently, mm-hmm. getting distance on mm-hmm. This experience. Yeah, get them out there when they're young, too, before they're uncomfortable. Now, I was thinking the other night, I was looking at Huey Newton's book called Revolutionary Suicide, and it was something that I remember talking to students about years ago. And I remember uh, the students, this was in the uh, Woodrow Wilson, the urban schools here in Oakland, and I would, the kids would say, why do white people hate us? And I would try to tell them that it wasn't so much hatred, let's face it, as they just didn't know. They were, I guess, indifferent, you know. I said, they just don't think about it, which is almost more hurtful, you know. And I said, what happens is that you're reacting, you know. And Huey Newton says that, he said that a revolutionary suicide is somebody who takes up his life in his own hands and makes decisions. You know, whether he lives or dies is beside the point. He's a revolutionary. He said, if you're a reactionary suicide, then you believe what the society tells you about yourself, and you act that out. Sadly enough, I guess maybe people would say that that happened to Huey Newton at last, if he did die of a drug overdose, although I think it was, if I remember... He got shot. I'm not sure. But anyway, he was in um, a drug scene. But he called that a reactionary um, death or suicide is when you you buy into what you've been told you are, you know, and there's a kind of soul murder takes place and you let yourself be destroyed by the forces around you rather than overcoming them. I agree completely. Uh, And a perfect example of that was my daughter decided to go to Tuskegee University, and I was so upset with her. I'm saying, Leslie, we're living in San... I'm sorry. Oh, no. (laughs) We're living in... Ignore that. (laughs) Name behind the curtain. <laughs> we're living in San Francisco, and they're, you know we're surrounded by all these wonderful universities, and you want to go to Tuskegee. Okay, mm-hmm. the backdrop of this is I had been spent a lot of time watching TV, okay? And mm-hmm. I would read about Tuskegee um, Institute when it was called that a long time ago. Traditions. Yeah, Booker T. Washington, et cetera. But I just knew when I, you know, it was going to be an inferior school. When I get, got there, there would be a bunch of temporary buildings. All this from simply staying in watching TV. Well, when I took her there to start school and I saw entire families, including the Mm -hmm. grandparents, bringing their student to be educated, Mm -hmm. it just brought me to tears Mm -hmm. because I had just been so uh, blinded Mm -hmm. by the media. And also I'd been absorbing all this information about African-Americans are responsible for this and that, you know, this crime rate and and uh, they're in this. um, What do they call that? Um, when you, uh, when they already have you pegged as you're not going to succeed or go beyond a certain point at risk, yeah. that the kids are at mm-hmm. risk and everything. Tracked. So it's, it's really yeah, possible to start that. But Jennifer, I just want to address something that you said. I don't 
know if I agree that um, the thing about people, Caucasians being uncomfortable with African-Americans or people from other countries, I don't know if it's a lack of knowledge. It might just be fear and also wanting to maintain power. It's all very complicated psychologically. I was thinking the other day, something I was reading about Booker T, and uh, it, it's hard. What was it? Um, oh, shoot. It was Booker T and W.E.B. Du Bois. And <laughs> it's like somebody the other night was talking about, <laughs> God, what was it? Uh, wine Democrats and beer Democrats, <laughs> you know, and Hillary that was the, funny. yeah, Hillary was the beer Democrat and Obama was the wine Democrat. And I said, what? I'm confused now, you know, are we talking about class here or what? Anyway, W.E.B. Du Bois was supposed to be the intellectual. He lets his, our, his daughter marry that gay poet and didn't even know the guy was, anyway, he was very <laughs> esoteric and, you know, he was the elite and Booker was supposed to be the down to earth guy, but, Booker T. Washington was the one who said, you know, let your buckets down where you are. You know, if if the jobs are industrial, well, then, you know, we'll we'll give them a technological education along with the rest, you know. Bloom where you are planted. Right. Something like that. It's it's so complicated. Uh, I think, what is that? Uh, everybody's got a kind of a snob gene. Somebody was talking about the other day talking about the... The, the snobbery of failures. And I said, yeah, that's me. I'm an eclectic failure. I failed at everything. You know, that was, was it Beckett's line? Try again, fail again, fail better. Yes. No, it's, it's impossible in today's world. We, was, our language has gotten very dicey. I, I find that after all these years, 50 years of trying to be in, well, uh, what is it? I'm a recovering English teacher, you know. I finally figured out that most of the words I use have really changed over my lifetime, you know, and I don't make myself understood. And it's getting harder and harder. Lately, I, I want to go back to rich and poor, <laughs> you know. I want to go back to the simplest, most straightforward ways of looking at things because the other day somebody was hollering at me. What was it? The word was neocon. But... It's almost impossible these days to talk about what, what would you call it? Uh, somebody said that the word poverty had not yet been mentioned at the Democratic Convention, that these people are afraid to talk about reality, you know. I think they are. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, we have, what, what's the word? We have brainwashed, conditioned, whatever the TV trance. Everybody talks like, a yuppie or a buppy, I guess we call them now. Uh, you know, uh, some kind of, what, what is the word for that? Uh, some kind of American, mm, everybody, it's, oh, I was thinking Bill Cosby again the other day. Everybody is a middle class person. And I said the other day to a friend, I said, uh, could you support yourself for a year if you lost your job? She said, oh, God, no. I said, well, you're working class then. And she said, no, I'm a middle class person. I said, no, you're not. You don't have any reserve or any property. You don't have any land. I said, you know, we're as close to, well, we're not slaves exactly, but I said, I think we are slaves to media, to TV. We're certainly not free human beings around here. I I don't know. It gets so complicated. Well, who do you think makes up the middle class? Because 
from my understanding is most people could not support support themselves beyond two of course months after they lost their job okay they're working class uh they're working class middle class to me means that at least you own property okay you've got some property and you have some reserve wealth so you'd have to sell your property though right but you you know you wouldn't die you know you wouldn't be out of uh I, I guess we'd have to go down to the Department of Labor Statistics and come up with some figures, you know. But let's face it, uh, what is it? Uh, the last time I tried to read The Economist and understand some of these things, uh, Ch- China owns us. You know? <laughs> I don't want to get into this argument because I'm not a good enough expert. But, I'm in Saudi Arabia. Right. You know, we are a debtor nation. We are in a mess here. And it's no good kidding ourselves. At the same time, you know, I think of economics as mostly uh, an act of faith. As long as we can make people believe we're rich, somehow or another we manage, you know, we, we get away with it. But surely, you know, I think of it, it's like that cartoon Roadrunner where the guy's running along, you know, and he runs right off the cliff and he keeps going for the longest way. And then all of a sudden he looks down <laughs> and there's nothing underneath him and wham, you know. Down he falls. I think, you know, the empire is definitely crumbling uh, under our feet. I think it's like, what is it? I, I love to compare it to Rome. That's my most favorite. But there's not really any comparison. But the whole notion that we, what is it? We're uh, not destroying ourselves from within. But, you know, we're eating, our, we're chewing our own tail here. You know, this whole business of, of terrorism I noticed that the uh, at the convention they're all chasing terrorists. I don't you know <laughs> the protesters outside are being called terrorists. And it's uh, you know homeland security's out there checking on people, you know? Well, they're busy right now trying to figure out why the FAA is having problems with its computer today. Oh yeah, well no, the the um the technology uh is going to be Oh, oh, what I would call, what is it, the trickster, the joker in the deck. I I think it's wildly funny. The other day somebody asked me why I didn't have, uh, you know, the machinery. I said, you think I don't have enough headaches, enough trouble? I said, I'd get rid of the telephone if I dared. You know, I didn't have an answering machine until a couple of people said, well, you can't, you're not allowed to be who you are or do what you do if you don't have an answering machine. Right. I said, I don't like to be connected all day long you know i like to connect it and i like to go you know have some empty space there they said well what do you do about your emails you know (laughs) no you don't have any right no it's it's funny uh somebody was talking about carolyn kennedy she's a golden blonde now she introduced her her uncle ted at the at the convention and that poor woman she has written a book on uh, the need for privacy what is it? She's the last remaining member of the nuclear family of Jack and, you know, her brother John died in the airplane. And, uh, uh, Jackie's dead at 63 and so forth. And, um, Carolyn, I don't know. I guess I think she's, she's married, but she's not been a public person, you know. No. There wasn't a dry eye in the house when she, she dragged out poor old Ted Kennedy. And I got to thinking, you know, like a good, Zen um, Buddhist, I kept thinking, maybe it is just as heroic to lead a life like Ted Kennedy's, you know, where you just slog away and do what you can. I mean, he's been, what is it, 40 years a senator, 
and still up there hollering for universal health care, and he got a little bit, you know, what is it, good is done in minute particulars, you know. And he gave the Irish blessing to Barack, and I thought, if he has the patience to spend a lifetime, you know, working so hard for what seems to me so little, you know, then I guess he gets a hero's hat as well as his, you know, martyred brother's uh Never mind, I'm rattling. I'm remember, rattling. Remember, he's doing penance. You're right, you're right. Uh, I've been talking Get to Veronica Faisant, my engineer, and uh, one of these days we're going to read you some Toni Morrison. I think that would be fun because uh, I want to talk next time. If you get a chance, when there's a break in the convention, turn on The Blacklist if you've got HBO. It's a wonderful program about... Black uh, African Americans in history and literature in this country, and it's perfect. It's wonderful backup for the convention this week. It's called The Blacklist on HBO. This is Jennifer Stone. I'll be back Thursday morning at eight twenty. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. At this year's Democratic and Republican National Conventions, as always, thousands of politicians, power brokers, media mavens, and wannabe descend on Denver and St. Paul to jockey for control of their parties and then campaign for political control of this country, as we have since 1972. Pacifica Radio will bring you unconventional coverage, asking questions politicians don't hear from other media and don't want to answer, and broadcasting voices from the protests outside, as well as our own analysts dissecting the platforms, speeches, and the campaign to come. Join me, Larry Bensky, and the rest of the Pacifica crew for unconventional coverage from Denver and St. Paul, Monday through Thursday, both convention weeks, from 5 to 9 p.m. on 94.1 FM.